Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Fraser here with a very exciting announcement. Spiked is launching an internship program. We're offering paid placements to aspiring writers, podcasters, and video makers who want to cut their teeth at the world's best political magazine. You'll work with us for six months, full-time, in London, starting from July, and there's the possibility of more work at the end of it. You can apply for an editorial internship where you'll help us to produce our articles, features, and essays, or an audiovisual internship where you'll help us to produce our podcasts and videos like this one. To find out more and to apply, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash interns. That's spiked-online.com forward slash interns. Good luck. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the impending demise of Roe v. Wade, the UK local elections, the war in Ukraine and the attack on Dave Chappelle. So a Supreme Court draft opinion was leaked earlier this week, suggesting that the Supreme Court intends to repudiate Roe v. Wade, which is the 1973 decision that essentially legalises abortion uh, throughout the United States. Now, obviously, this is a massive deal. This is probably the big, biggest news story across the world. I mean, potentially half of American states could be looking to uh, essentially make abortion illegal. 13 are believed to have trigger ballots, which could instantly make abortion illegal. I mean, Ella, this is obviously strange looking at this from outsiders in most democratic countries. This issue is fairly settled. How did we get here in the United States? So just to give a uh, sort of very quick overview, um, in, the, in 1973, the Supreme Court ruled in favour of Jane Roe in the case of Roe versus Wade, which uh, essentially made two very clear points. One was that, yes, a woman had a right to access abortion, but that had to be balanced with the state's uh, interest in protecting um, the unborn and interest in women's, uh, women's health. And so they came up with basically a compromise which said that they would allow abortion up until fetal viability, which mm. at that point they thought was around about 28 weeks. That in the first trimester, there would be no restrictions, uh, essentially, but up until 24, 28 weeks, there would be some restrictions. And that stayed in place for a very long time. There were several cases which were brought by states which kind of tried to chip away at Roe versus Wade over the decades. Um, but it wasn't really until 2018 in the case of Dobbs versus, Dobbs versus Jackson um, in Mississippi, uh, and this was you know, during the Trump presidency, in which um, Mississippi brought forward a law which would have banned abortion up until uh, after, sorry, 15 weeks. Uh, that was deemed unconstitutional under mm. Roe versus Wade and you know, it was sued and the whole kind of rigmarole of legal cases ensued. The important reason why that case stood out was it was because during the Trump presidency, um, there was Brett Kavanaugh was appointed to the Supreme Court, a known conservative um, thinker who leaned in favour of pro-life. 
Um, and then in 2020, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and was replaced by Amy Conan Barrett. And so states like Mississippi suddenly started to realise that they had a chance if they were being sued to push these cases to the Supreme Court and then basically threaten Roe versus Wade itself. Mm. You can call it cynical if you want, but there was definitely a political ploy to tr to, for many Republicans to think this is our time to overturn Roe versus Wade. And you now have uh, nine justices on the Supreme Court, six of whom were appointed by Republicans. And we know that four are definitely in favour of overturning Roe versus Wade. And with this leak now, it looks like the jig is up for those who want to defend abortion rights. So it, the history of it is convoluted, but there has always been, it's not like Roe versus Wade in the 70s, settled the issue. There has always been a very heated debate about abortion rights in America. And Tom, I mean, what's kind of interesting is that this issue seems to have been debated and settled not through democratic yeah. politics, as is normally the case, as has been the case in the United Kingdom, as was recently the case in Ireland, where there was, you know, a huge victory in favour of abortion rights in a referendum. This has been done through the courts via the judiciary. No, exactly. And it's um, both made Roe very fragile and also kind of inflamed the issue to a certain extent. I mean, it, it, given the kind of setup, given the existence of essentially judicial supremacy on this issue and many others in American public life, is that the the, the zone for politics becomes somewhat shrunk. And mm. so therefore on this um, issue in particular, the sorts of means through which you had this out was essentially through, um, again, trying to get a majority on the court, uh, which Trump successfully secured and which really just kind of paved the way for this. I mean, in, in a sense... It's kind of interesting to see the kind of shock, given the fact that I think most people who were paying attention knew that something like this was coming, given the makeup of the court and given the views of those particular justices and all the rest of it. Um, and the, so you see that kind of profound fragility, I guess, of relying on that. It becomes very kind of all or nothing. I think it also has sort of distorted American politics to a certain extent. You have kind of quite unlikely coalitions because they will feel quite strongly on this particular issue, but not on, on others. Um, I thought it was interesting. Anne Frady wrote a brilliant piece for us on Spike this week um, about the importance of um, abortion rights and the importance of the right to choose as a, as a private matter, as a mm. constitutional matter even. But there was one particular bit of a piece that I thought was quite revealing. She just touches on the fact that there has been potentially as a byproduct of the fact that this was being had out on that kind of legal judicial level, a sort of lack of um, argumentation, lack of enthusiasm, uh, particularly amongst younger people on this particular issue. Uh, the sense in which, particularly with the rise of identity politics, that women's rights became kind of one intersectional issue amongst many. Uh, there was polling in 2019 suggested that Gen Z in particular were far more interested in the kind of modish issues, you know, mm. um, climate change, school shootings, uh, police brutality, things like this. And as a consequence of that, there's just a kind of lack of focus on this as a particular issue it feels like and interestingly also just over recent years whilst on all kinds of other issues you know you have um, people becoming much more liberal on certain topics this one has remained remarkably stagnant and i think one byproduct that you hope you would see is that the left in particular kind of taking a, a look at itself um, and recognizing that first of all you can't just assert your kind of moral superiority in this issue or any other and expect things to stay the same or yeah. change in the direction that you want but also that this is a, is a fundamental issue, which makes a lot of the stuff that we usually talk about, to be honest, just completely fade into insignificance. You know, we, we talk endlessly about the politics of pronouns or microaggressions when a fundamental right of women's bodily autonomy has been to a certain extent neglected. Mm. Um, and you would hope that something as significant as this, and it is incredibly significant, you can't uh, really overdo that, will shake them out of that. Uh, but I dare say it might take a little while for that to dawn on a lot of people. And I mean... 
do you think, Ella, that it's significant that we almost don't want to use the word woman anymore? I mean, obviously, you know, we shouldn't ignore the fact that this is this attack is coming from the conservative right, not from the woke left. But at the same time, there is an unwillingness to defend, you know, women's rights quite straightforwardly. I mean, the Washington Post in its editorial on this um, draft leak doesn't mention the word woman, for instance, in defending abortion rights. You know, we've had certain representatives talk about birthing bodies have a right to abortion. That must play some kind of role in this, at least in the inability to mount a defence. I think it just dilutes the issue. And we saw this, I mean, there was a big row that happened in 2018 in Ireland when the um, referendum on repealing the Eighth Amendment was happening where certain, you know, certain abortion rights groups that were more, they were younger and they were more kind of hit to all of the sort of gender discussion were insisting on using phrases like pregnant bodies and all that kind of stuff. And the more seasoned abortion activists were saying, hang on a minute, if we're going to get sort of Catholic Ireland to move on this, please don't mm. muddy the waters by bringing in the trans thing now. It's irrelevant. But it's not just that it dilutes it. It's also a fact that, you know, the, the thing about abortion is that there is, you know, it is a, people talk about it as a question of women's health care and the, in these sort of very practical terms. But it also is about a fundamental question of women's standing in society based on the fact that the fact of our bodies um, and what happens to our bodies when we're pregnant and the differences between our bodies and men's bodies on a very visceral biological level is, um, is, has been used as a means to control and, and, uh, and restrict our freedom. And you can't get away from that. This is not something that happens to men. It's not something that happens to trans women. It is something that happens to women who give birth and get pregnant. Um, and unless you're clear on that, then you can't be clear on the reasons why this sexist restriction against women has been around for many years. And, you know, there's been a kind of a very frustrating discussion about the Supreme Court leak. There's lot. There's been a kind of carnival of reaction, particularly from um, some on the right, not just uh, those celebrating it, but the suggestion that the Supreme Court leak is about everything other than women's rights and women's freedom. So this is sort of some people saying, you know, this is just about democracy. It's about fixing the Supreme Court. And you think, oh, please, like it is not. This is not about a, a question of judicial um, sort of um, oversight and changing that. It's about abortion. It's also the case that people are sort of playing down the seriousness of what's going to happen. You mentioned the 13 states that have trigger laws. In Arkansas, um, the minute Roe versus Wade uh, drops and is overturned, they will institute a law that will make abortion in all cases, unless a woman is going to die, illegal with um, practitioners facing a 10-year jail sentence. In Idaho, abortion providers will become felons if they um, if they give uh, any women access to services. So this, you know, uh, Planned Parenthood have estimated that 36 million women in America will immediately lose access to uh, abortion. And that's bad for all kinds of reasons. And yes, women's lives will be threatened and all, all the rest of it. But it also says something fundamental about America's belief in freedom and why all those fantastic things about the constitution of freedom of conscience, you know, the American dream about... Uh, you know, chasing your ambitions, having the space and the privacy. This was a really key part of Roe versus Wade that it enshrined the idea or it, it defended the idea of the 14th Amendment of having privacy from the state to be able to make decisions. Now, you know, lots of our comrades um, in the pro-choice movement have really missed an opportunity over the last two years when you have had, you know, huge figures in the American right like Ted Cruz coming out and banging the drum for bodily autonomy mm. in relation to vaccine mandates and masks and fa making fabulous points, really good points that I couldn't find a word to disagree with. But instead of saying, 
great point, Ted. Now you join our My Body, My Choice movement and extend those rights to women. They're unwilling to cross the political divide. And mm. I think there has to be some movement now away from the kind of handmaidens, a performative yeah. sort of dancing around thing saying all men are scum. I understand that. And the first, and believe me, I'm as angry as those women are. But moving now towards saying, what do we genuinely need to do to win women's freedom in America? And blocking out the right on this is not going to win it. And is it, Tom, is it just that ideas like freedom and choice and autonomy just don't seem to have the same purchase anymore, at least not on the left? I think the issue, they don't have the same purchase. We all know that, which probably has something to do with the lack of particular interest in this, um, because then it just becomes a kind of question of competing victimhoods. And I actually think that's a very big danger, actually, is mm. that the abortion discussion becomes primarily, um, as it is sometimes want to do, becoming a discussion about essentially women's potential peril in victimhood if this is not upheld. Now, of course, you know, the sort of the horror stories that people are worried about uh, not ne- are not necessarily fear-mongering, but again, you can't really mount a strong defence of this as a fundamental right um, mm. if you're doing it on the basis of scare stories. So there's a, there's a danger that it gets kind of sucked into that. Um, and, I th- and I think that's one of the problems to, to the extent that this has been neglected by the kind of identitarian era. Uh, the answer to that is not to basically argue for it on shrill identitarian terms. And there's always the danger that we kind of move into that uh, because it's only going to really get us further away from the discussion you need to have, which is to say this is a fundamental issue, as Ella was saying, of autonomy, of conscience, of privacy. And that even though people in your community and the rest of your nation might not particularly agree with the choice that you make, it's you and your family's choice to make. Um, that seems to me to be, even though it feels like a big mountain to climb in somewhere like America and a lot of states in particular, uh, that's the much firmer ground on which this argument can be had, not on competing models of victimhood. Because again, the pro-life position, uh, flawed though I believe it is, has their response to that. Spiked is now officially in the publishing business. We're delighted to say that we're partnering with John Wilkes Publishing to produce a series of books about the maddening times that we find ourselves in, and we couldn't have picked a better book to start with. This is How Woke Won, the latest book by Spike's Joanna Williams, all about the woke takeover of all of our institutions and how we, as members of the public, might fight back against it. It's out for pre order now. You can go and claim your copy at Amazon or go to the Spike website to find out more. And to celebrate the release of How Woke One, we're having an extra special live edition of Brendan O'Neill's podcast, The Brendan O'Neill Show. Joanna will be joining him for a conversation on Monday, the 16th of May at 7 p.m. If you're a Spike supporter, you can claim a free ticket to this event now at the Spike Supporters Hub. If you're not a Spike supporter, now's a very good time to sign up. Just £5 per month and you can claim your ticket to this event as well as enjoy plenty other perks as well so that's how woke one go and pre-order your copy now and get your ticket for that live zoom edition of brenda's podcast so let's talk about the uk local elections they're happening right now as we speak so we don't know the results but we're expecting the governing tories to take a bit of a hit i mean they've had a pretty torrid time lately tom haven't they yeah i mean it's it's been dreadful so it has for labor to be fair i think the last particular weeks have been woeful insofar as how much it feels like politics has shrunk how lack of a choice we feel like we have going into this election it's a local election obviously but still you know you feel like you're back in kind of like david cameron ed miller band sort of times in which Mm. you just dislike both of them for slightly different reasons and it's all quite (laughs) off-putting and irritating um that's certainly what it feels like at the moment but in particular you know we're recording this on election day bank of england just announced that we're headed for recession double digit inflation and we spent the past week or so talking about tractor porn (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, 
chicken cormas and all the rest of it. And I think it just it just speaks to how kind of woeful the choice that we have in front of us at the moment. Incidentally, I think Keir Starmer has really messed things up for himself because he he's again sort of put so much stock in the sense that he's basically respectable, yeah. uh, that he basically would never lie, that he basically is so on the up and up. And because he lent so hard into kind of lockdown moralism, suggesting that Rishi Sunak should resign because he briefly attended a birthday cake <laughs> <laughs> event or whatever. He's made a rod for himself. But I think, again, that just, uh, I think it just demonstrates the the paucity of choice that we've been given at this election and probably the next one as well. Yeah, I mean, Ella, I mean, we do have this, you know, looming economic crisis and there does seem to be really nothing on the table. As as Tom says, the, the fight is over competing accusations of party gate, <laughs> uh, beer gate, as it's annoyingly been termed. No one has any solutions to anything. No, there's nothing exciting happening. I mean, YouGov did this uh, sort of survey of, 16 um, constituencies where there are elections happening and found that, you know, unsurprisingly, the Conservatives are going to take a hit, that Labour are going to pick up some places. But also it's kind of like Groundhog Day that in the red wall areas, mm. so-called, that Labour are still going to do badly. They're going to do, they, or at least they won't do as well um, as in other areas. So it's it's still kind of, tw- it's, it's 2019 mentality for the Labour Party, at least, where it's like, you know, in a few places they're going, they could swing. Um, but in general, there has been no real movement. And, you know, you have to remember that in 2019, there was a, it was a much bigger uh, election, national election with the big parties. There was this sense of the Conservatives bringing change. You know, yeah. they sure you might, you know, you might roll your eyes at me and say, Ella, that was just rhetoric. <laughs> Maybe it was, but there was a kind of a sense of going to get Brexit done, going to, you know, do all that kind of... It's funny, no one mentions the word levelling up anymore. <laughs> it has completely fallen out of the Westminster lexicon because it's just quite clear that they're either not able or not willing to do it anymore, even though it was an empty slogan to begin with. But all of that's gone and you now have a very real crisis um, with, you know, not to kind of play the Elsie line from the Susanna Reid interview with Boris Johnson earlier this week, but, you know real thing of, of pensioners riding buses to keep warm and people freaking out about whether or not they're going to have enough to um, fill the fridge for their kids. And it's very dire straits for lots of people. And um, neither party has any kind of radical economic policy. It's all tinkering around the edges. And it's and they're still managing to try and blame everything on the pandemic, despite the fact that, you know, during the pandemic, they, they you know, at least Rishi Sunak came up with some slightly innovative ways to do things. So it's a really, you know, local elections are always, dare I say, dull. And, you know, a lot of the time they're mostly about bins and things like that. But funny enough, you know, things like bins, council tax, parking charges, all of that suddenly gets a new um, importance when you are looking at your bills so closely because every penny counts. And so I think that the, you know, the Conservatives are in for, I think, a very hard time because they are the government, they are to blame, they're the ones that have the power to make decisions. And they have not made really any decisions. I thought it was interesting that, that Boris kind of acknowledged that the government could do more to help with the cost of living crisis, but had precisely no ideas as to how to help. Mm. And then Labour's big idea is this windfall tax on energy. And somehow they can't quite explain how this is going to bring energy bills down. And we know that it certainly doesn't deal with the actual problems of our energy supply, which have been so long in the making. You know, re- both Labour and Tory governments mm. are responsible for that, quite frankly. Um, so again, there is this just deep sense that we're stuck in this mess and we have no big ideas of how to get out of it. Yeah. And they're all wedded to the same orthodoxies because of the way in which you have the kind of energy crisis, cost of living crisis, all of this coming to a head. 
Uh, part of the problem is that so much of this has been set in train by the decisions that have been made by successive governments, which is basically to believe for reasons of future generations and moral virtue that mm-hmm. it's better to make uh, life more expensive and energy more expensive in order yeah. to meet this greater goal. That's really coming to bite now, but as you say, no alternatives or options in how to deal with that. So the war in Ukraine is now in its 10th week. Uh, much of the fighting is no longer happening around Kiev, but around the sort of south and the east of the country in the Donbass region. The West is now quite heavily involved, sending lots of weapons, lots of other kinds of assistance. I mean, to such an extent that Russia is accusing the West of being involved in a proxy war, of escalating the war. I mean, Tom, what do you make of those kinds of accusations? They're ridiculous in many respects because of the fact that who is brandishing nuclear weapons? Who invaded a sovereign nation to begin with? I mean, I'm sensitive to a couple of things in this discussion which are worth talking about insofar as, you know, the West has to play a certain canny game. You know, I think some of the words coming from the US Defence Secretary, uh, from our own Foreign Secretary recently, talking about kind of the West strategic aims in Ukraine, the desire for a weakened Russia so Mm. that it won't be able to do this again. Risks, again, kind of broadening, shall we say, the the issue here broadening this from one nation's fight for its own self-determination into something uh, which again all these other aims and western aims are kind of loaded on top of it but at the same time this pales into insignificance with what russia has been doing and you can at the same time understand that spectacular blunders have been made in recent years and even in recent weeks you know joe biden casually talking about regime change in russia (laughs) being an obvious example of that whilst recognizing that it is through the looking glass stuff for whether it's uh kremlin spokesman or whether it's some of the uh, people normally kind of anti-war left in the west suggesting that the answer to all of this is for the west to de-escalate because we're the escalatory force that the west is the escalatory force it just doesn't bear any resemblance to reality we shouldn't underestimate the very serious situation that we find ourselves in mm. um we shouldn't underestimate how um high the stakes are but again to see the invading power here tell everyone else that they need to calm down and de-escalate it just doesn't bear any scrutiny i mean thinking of some of you know the kind of putin quotes that he's put out there threatening the west with you know consequences you've never seen before mm. i think we all know what that means there was this kind of sort of propaganda video, I don't know if people saw, mm. of um, essentially Britain being wiped off the map. But I mean, obviously, you know, this is tough talk and it's and it's over the top, but still, it shows which side the escalation is on. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, that slightly bizarre um, video of the underwater missile suddenly causing a tsunami is, you know, in, I think in a different context, it would have been terrifying. But because it's coming out of Russia in this sort of slightly hammed up way that they do things, which is, um, you know, from the start, we have to remember that it's not just because we're, you know, 10 weeks, 70 days um, into the war, but because, you know, from the very start, Russia was threatening nuclear weapons or at least alluding to it and kind Mm -hmm. of like wink and a nudge, I've got this in my back pocket, remember, right at the beginning, that it's kind of loses its sting. And we've had, um, you know, UK and US correspondents coming on and saying, well, look, almost sounding a little bit Cold War and saying, well, don't wor- don't worry, everyone, we've got nukes as well. And they know that it's mutual destruction. And I think that can, I, I don't want to downplay that, you know, it, we're not sort of playing Monopoly here. I mean, it is, it is a, it is a possibility. All things are possible, possible in war, but you have to kind of take a step back and think, what is it that is being fought for here? And the question of Ukrainian sovereignty. And in the long term, if you just bow down, de-escalate and 
you know, even take a position of appeasement, which some, a lot of people sound like they're, they're on the road to doing, in the face of nuclear weapons, the message you're essentially saying to every autocrat and dictator and um, immoral leader in the, in, the, in the world is that if you brandish nuclear weapons, that's it, you win and the game's over and we'll all roll over. Um, and so you have to balance those two things of saying nobody wants mutually assured destruction. Um, you're, you'd be an idiot to kind of uh, dismiss nuclear weapons. They are a serious thing that exists in the world. Yeah. But at the same time, there are some things that are worth fighting for. And, uh, you know, Russia has, Tom is right, Russia has begun this war holding a gun to Ukraine's head. And, you know, you don't make decisions, the, the kind of decisions you make with a gun held to your head are not the ones you make in abstract in a kind of international relations lecture hall. And so we have to, you know, the question really for everyone is, do you think Ukrainian sovereignty is worth fighting for? And do you think sovereignty in general, in the context of what's happening in Europe over the last sort of 10 years, is a political belief that's worth fighting for? If so, then kind of put your, and, and, you know, put your money where your mouth is and put your tanks where your mouth is. And that is what the UK has more increasingly done. And I think lots of us have maybe, as this war has rolled on, realised that it isn't going to just be fixed by a little bit of compromise around a table, that Russia, I think a lot of people underestimated Russia, and that if it means stepping up support for Ukraine with all the risks that that in, in entails, I think most people who genuinely believe in sovereignty say it's worth it. And finally on this issue, Tom, I mean, the UK is obviously sort of stepping up to the plate. Boris Johnson was um, invited to address the Ukrainian parliament, uh, first world leader to do so. Why does this irritate so many sort of domestic observers? It seems to mm. create a very bizarre reaction. It was interesting because the allegation this week was that it was, you know, electioneering ahead of the local elections and the timing and all the rest of it. Um, whereas previously... Um, there was irritation with it because of the fact that it just upset the narrative that Johnson and the Tories were sort of Putin stooges. Mm. These just aren't particularly serious people. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's been made clear. They see every issue through the prism of their own particular petty concerns, their beef with Boris Johnson over Brexit. And so therefore they're not really particularly worth listening to, I don't think. I mean, it's, it's interesting, just on Ella's point about the kind of people who are demanding that Ukraine basically give up. I mean, that's what these calls for de-escalation or the West de-escalating, the West not... Um, continuing to show solidarity and support Ukraine. So that, that Ukraine should just give in. Mm. What I find interesting about that position is that people maintain it, even as the situation on the ground has changed quite dramatically. I mean, last time we were talking about this in the podcast, you know, I think that was at the point in which Russia was refocusing its efforts purely on the Donbass because of the fact that they'd been pushed back elsewhere. Um, you know, there was a discussion that with uh, Victory Day coming up on the 9th of May, that this that Putin wanted some sort of win to be able to declare. Now the discussion, serious though it is, but revealing, I think, is about whether or not he's going to have to call a general mobilisation, declare all-out war, because of the mm. fact that it seems like the forces that he is, has remaining have basically one more, effect, one more fight in them at this particular point. And yet every, at every point throughout this, despite the remarkable bravery, despite some of the remarkable successes, although losses as well, you know, um, the last people in the steel plant of Mariupol was seen to be being cleared out at this particular point, or at least um, Russia is threatening to. You know, none of that dents this desire for Ukraine basically to give in. And I think that's that's revealing. And, and you do wonder what might actually make them think that this is a, is a cause worth fighting for. And it's a cause that still, for the moment, remains the Ukrainians to win. And they're doing a, a pretty amazing job at putting up that fight. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. 
Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Comic legend Dave Chappelle was assaulted on stage this week at the Hollywood Bowl. His attacker was dealt with pretty thoroughly by the security guards and Chappelle was able to return to the stage and make a little quip that it must have been a trans man. Um, Tom, is there a deeper significance to this kind of attack? Because it's more than just a heckle. Yeah, it is. And we don't know what this man's motivations were. Um, the reporting seems to suggest he might have been resident at home or shelter at the particular time. He was, he did reportedly have a weapon on him, like a replica gun that had a blade inside, which mm. raises the stakes to a certain degree. But I think it's just hard not to see it in the context of all of the flack that Dave Chappelle has got. The accusations, essentially, that his jokes around gender ideology, trans, the trans issue in general, were not just offensive or mean or whatever, but that were actually a form of violence against trans people. And I think the response to it was actually quite revealing in that there were a lot of headlines, a lot of outlets who seemed to be more upset by that trans man quip yeah. rather than the attack itself, <laughs> which I think at least gives us, whilst we don't know this guy's particular motivations, at least gives us a snapshot of where we're at when you kind of think that words are violence, when you think that offensive speech is the most dangerous thing in the world. You get into a situation where comedians are getting rugby tackled on stage and the thing you're upset about is the joke that the comedian told afterwards. So in that sense, I think it's reflective regardless of what the particulars of this attack and what he was trying to achieve might turn out to be. Last year, there was a protest outside Netflix trying to get, you know, Dave Chappelle's uh, special, The Closer, cancelled. And all of the complaints were that Chappelle was literally inflicting violence upon trans people with mm. his jokes, that he's making their, harming their lives, making life difficult yeah. for them. I think the quote was, we're not here because we can't take a joke. We're here because these jokes are taking lives, which we went around the world was incredible. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. And then also there were some scuffles and some violence at the actual demo against some quite funny counter protesters <laughs> who held up really offensive signs like we like Dave and jokes are funny. Um, so this, this idea has been around for a long time, not just that jokes are violence, but words are violence. I mean, We've got to push back against that, haven't we? Ella? Yeah, well, I mean, when you first, when I first read the Dave Chappelle story, I, you know, it said he's been rushed on stage and you think, oh dear, and he was you know, making jokes about Jamie Foxx got involved and <laughs> Dave Chappelle was saying, I've done 35 years in comedy and I've always wanted to stomp someone backstage and now I have <laughs> pictures of the guy with a very Ooh. sore looking broken arm. It's and hurt and then more details come out and you think he had a, he had a gun, which, you know, it's a replica gun with a knife attached, but he had a gun. He could have shot Dave Chappelle. Or was it a and, fake gun, but with the, that you could flick a knife yeah, out of? Yeah, but I mean, if you can get a fake gun in with a knife, then you could get a real gun in. And so, that, so this is, this was a very serious thing, mm. even though Dave Chappelle did a very good job of, um, you know, being a good performer and, and sort of shaking it off. And you do have to say that if it, we are at a, a situation in which you are literally saying that jokes are so harmful that it's legitimate for someone to get up either that it's legitimate for someone to get up and slap someone on mm. national television as will smith did punt, you know hit someone or that they can get up with a gun you know we're forever being told that escalation is a very real thing there's a sliding scale of abuse and mm. you know you send dog whistles out to people when you do these kinds of things and no one very few people are actually challenging the idea that you should be forced to sit in your seat or walk out if you want and take a joke, even if you don't like it, rather than resorting to violence. I mean, the thing about, you know, Dave Chappelle is that it, this is specific to the current moment and it is specific to the trans and gender discussion because there have been comedians long before him. And actually Dave Chappelle himself at the start of his career was making, you know, he he's made 
His whole career is based on making offensive jokes against white people. Yeah, I mean, Chappelle show is far more offensive than any of his. Yeah, and, you know, and more recent. Material. You know, in, in you know, you had Eddie Murphy making some very heinous um, uh, homophobic jokes in his time. Richard Pryor being the first kind of uh, black comedian to get up and say "motherfucker" several times on you know all, all the time and was very controversial. Um, you know, Lenny Bruce. I could go on, uh, but the the idea of um, people resorting to violence. It for such a mundane thing as a joke has become now more normalized because mm. the stakes have been raised so high with the trans thing because it's suggested that you were literally threatening trans lives by making a joke. And, um, you know, there's a temptation to kind of say, for God's sake, this is so silly, but it actually, I think, should be taken kind of seriously because, um, you know, comedy is all about pushing the boundaries yeah. and not, not to get alarmist about it, but you can imagine some of the smaller comics who go to dingy um, clubs in you know, old back rooms and stuff and get up and try out their yeah. dodgiest material. In the starting, roof, of, roof room of a pub or something. Yes, yeah, starting to sweat a little bit because you do think, oh, hang on a minute, am I going to get lamped? And that's, you know, we, you know, without, again, without being alarmist, that's not a good place to be in. So is comedy a risky business now then, Tom? Well, it feels like it is. I mean, this is something that some comedians, particularly those who want to kind of push the envelope a little bit, have been saying for some time that even just the sort of heckles are becoming more pearl-clutching mm. and over the top. People morally object <laughs> to comedy in a way that they haven't done, at least, you know, from the kind of days of the Blue Rinse Brigade or whatever. And it, I think with Chappelle and the whole trans issue, it's particularly telling because he, he sort of belongs to a generation which feels like a distant era now in which making fun of difference was not only okay, it was mm. kind of seen as quite a good thing. You sort of let off steam, you laugh at one another, and therefore it's a, it's a way in which you almost transcend that difference. Yeah. The reaction to him in recent years has, has shown that on this issue, but on many others as well, that, that game is now over. And that's a real shame because mm. not only is it really kind of literal-minded and sort of philistine to suggest that someone is deeply transphobic because they happen to make jokes about gender or transgenderism itself or transgender figures or whatever, um, not only is it kind of reductive in that sense, it also gets us further away from the place we want to be, which is that comedy and anywhere else is a place in which kind of people of different backgrounds can get together and have a laugh without being too chocolate box and cliche about it. But yeah, it does feel like the fact that it's him who's become the focus for it does show us that that kind of more free and easy, relaxed, you can make these offensive jokes because you knew that people wouldn't take them too seriously because we're all human at the end of the day or whatever. Mm. That's kind of gone by the wayside now. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. 
Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 